Good morning. Good morning. Coming to you from <laughs> um, miscellaneous neighborhoods in Brooklyn because we are, as always, under quarantine. Going into week seven. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, well, we hope that all of our listeners are out there staying safe, staying healthy, staying sane, which I think is a... a the main issue for me yeah. right now, it's been interesting going through this process. I feel like it's almost like you're going through like the cycles of grief where at the beginning I was like really like angry and scared and now I'm just super resigned. I'm like, well, I guess <laughs> this is going to be a thing for a while. I think that's sort of true though. We are sort of mourning our old life. Um, but at least it sounds like people are calmer. Now, like, people that I talk to are um, mentally, like, we're starting to really hit the, like, human resilience, you know? Yeah. I'm grateful that, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't have to homeschool my children, you know, because that is, presents a whole other set of challenges that I don't think I'd be ready for. It's just me and my cats who are starting to drive me a little batty. Oh, really? Yeah. Any yeah. fun cat stories? They're 
always in my face. They're constantly begging for food. So because so I'm at home all the time now, their schedule is off, right? So every time I walk into the kitchen, one or all of them are there screaming at me saying, hey, and I have to look at them and say, you just had breakfast. Like, you can't have breakfast five times a day. It's so. like the, the um, Pavlov with the bell. Yeah. It's like every time you walk into the kitchen, you think they're getting fed. Yeah. So uh, I did invest in a huge bag of T-R-E-A-T-S. I can't uh-huh. say that word out. I can't say that word out loud. Uh, we would have three new members of the cast if I did. It's like, <laughs> yep, very vocal. They've become very vocal lately. Yeah. So I yep. had a cat sit for a friend of mine once, which is a joke because I'm allergic, and I'd never really been around cats before, so I did not know that they have a tendency to get upset if it takes too long to open the can of food and knock things off the counter. Uh, they'll just knock things off the counter because they're assholes. It's not just that it took too long. But it was like, I would like sit there opening this can of food and the cat would be like screaming at me. And then I hear this crash and like all the glasses have just been flung across the apartment. The cat food, the half open cat food, just like knocked food flying. Mm-hmm. It's like, God, like, mm-hmm. be cute. I have to keep the dry cat food bag on like a six foot shelf because Beulah will chew a hole in the side of it Oh my God. because, because their metal bowl full of dry food for which normally would be like a 45 pound dog isn't good enough. She oh. needs to know what's in the bag. I think that my favorite pet story, um, are Dachshund, mm. who are known for being a little ornery. They're yeah. cute though. I know. He has a personality. It was Thanksgiving, and we had the traditional break between dinner and dessert. Very so southern. So the pies out on the table, and you're supposed to push your chair in so that the dog can't hop onto the chair and onto the table. Well, I guess uh, it was probably me. Didn't push my <laughs> chair in quite enough. I was like, whatever. Like, the dogs are going to be in the room with, in the living room with us. Like, it'll be fine. Dash gets on the chair, gets on the table, and he starts eating the pumpkin pie, but because of the way that his little teeth are positioned, he can't actually eat the crust. So <laughs> he just ate the filling and, like, licked it clean. And so then we went into <laughs> the dining room. And we just found this pie shell where pie the shell. pumpkin pie had been. Sweet baby. We had a oh, it's so funny. We had a dog when I was growing up. It was the one dog our family had. Uh, it was a purebred Cocker Spaniel black and her name was Dixie and I loved her so much but she we called her the land shark (laughs) (laughs) because every time I mean she would just sit there and wait for people to drop something she's eaten full pumpkin shell before and then my mom and dad were having kind of like a neighborhood holiday party with all of their friends over and we had the, the kid gate to keep her in the kitchen and she my mom's best friend was holding like this, you know, the turkey, the little, little bun turkey sandwich in her hand while she was perusing the rest of the table. And Dixie took a running leap, la- snatched the sandwich out of the woman's hand and landed in the middle of the dining room table where the rest of the food was, grabbed something else and then went back to the kitchen. <laughs> That's amazing. I love this dog so much. That's like sitcom level shenanigans. It's, yeah. And then my parents told me she ran away, but they didn't, she didn't run away. They put her down, but I didn't know that till I was 20. I didn't know that till I was 27. Oh, 
no, my mom told me that our Doberman went to a farm. Yeah. I figured that out, like, within the past few years. I'm like, wait a minute. What farm? I was, like, asking her about it. I'm like, did this, like, was there, like, a Doberman rescue? And mom's like, well, no. And then she just, like, changed the topic. And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, I was bitter about it for a couple of years. I was like, because we were having an addition put on our house, and so the fence was gone. So it was feasible that she had gotten out and run away because she was a, she was a runner anyway. And mm-hmm. so it was a very plausible explanation to a twelve year old child. So when she finally told me when she was her and I were tipsy one day when I was twenty seven, oh, I was bitter. No. I was bitter about it, and I got. I told her I used to on the walk to school. There was another black cocker spaniel, and I would stand at their fence and be like, "Give me back my dog! You have my dog!" <laughs> very, very upset. My mom got me one of those robot dogs after, and she's like, "We got you a pet." I'm not, like, "This is not the same." <laughs> not the same. It's not the same. Um, well, we should probably get to H. H. Jones. Well, let me do some quick announcements because I oh, actually yeah, of course. Go for it. I actually pulled them up this time. Uh, friends, COVID-19 has been disrupting everyone's lives for weeks on end now, if you haven't felt it, and Radio Free Brooklyn is no exception. We want you to know that we have made every effort to ensure the health and well-being of our host staff and the community at large. We've closed both of our studios. We've canceled live events, although that's in-person live events. Now I think some of our hosts are actually doing uh, virtual live events, um, so log into our website to check that out. Um, but we are, you know, doing what we can. We're doing pre-records from our home studios or selecting the best rebroadcasts of past live shows. With most of our revenue streams evaporated, we need your help. We realize you may be hurting too, but if you could afford any small donation, it would go a long, long way to helping us stay on the air. There are three ways you can help. First, you can give a one-time or monthly donation by going to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. There you can buy some sweet merch. And like I said, I actually bought the goddamn sweatshirt last week. So I'm waiting to get that. You can also use your phone to text RFB Gives. That's RFB G-I-V-E 5 to 44321. Takes a couple of minutes. And you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation anytime, anywhere. Finally, uh, if you're shopping at Amazon, like most of us are these days, you can go to amazon.com slash smile and register Radio Free Brooklyn as the nonprofit of your choice to support. When you do, a percentage of your sales will go to RFB directly and it will cost you absolutely nothing. No donation is too big or too small. Whatever you can afford will make a huge difference. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts and wish all of you health, happiness, patience, and sanity as we weather the storm together. Oh, there you go. I was just thinking, um, when they said live events, I wonder if we have enough of our beautiful audience listening to us today, if anyone would be interested in possibly doing a Q&A with us. Uh, that's a good question. I was actually, uh, Patrick wanted me to do a quick um, Instagram chat with him about the episode he called in with because he wanted to post it on his Instagram this morning, which is why I actually have a little bit of makeup on <laughs> today. So I'll mention it. Yeah, that would, I think that would be a lot of fun. Um, maybe we could do some sort of uh, Zoom arrangement where people can call in and chat with us about the show. 
or her uh, or they could email me at megan at radiofreebooking.com and send us their comments and we could call them while we're chatting on skype that would be fun too um yeah because we've been doing the show for almost two years now i know (laughs) (laughs) well you've been doing it for two i think i came in like six months later yeah, you've been doing it for a while. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny, though, because when I first started doing the show, I was actually um, working for Investigation Discovery. And uh, there were so many crimes that we weren't able to cover, and that was kind of what gave me the idea to to do this. And it's really formed into a bright spot in my life. Mine, too. I wish we could do more local stuff, so I've been keeping an eye out for more interesting stories, but I cannot dig through the news right now, so. Yeah, and it's also, it's kind of fun to kind of, like, revisit some of these, like, people that you hear about. It's, like, very in the cultural zeitgeist. Like, H.H. Holmes was uh, one of the main characters in American Horror Story Hotel. Yes, he was a ghost that lived at the hotel. Yeah. And that's actually how I found out about him. Really? Yeah. Mm. I'm like a very new murderino. Um, I mean, I've always enjoyed things that are creepy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I enjoy like horror stories and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, but as far as actually researching um, past crimes, uh, it's always for me been more from the criminal justice slant and kind of like the Innocence Project. And right. so a lot of these serial killers that we're covering now are people that I didn't know their names until maybe a year or two ago. Nice. I got obsessed with H.H. H. Holmes. I knew about him, um, but then I bought The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson and read that. And then I needed to know a lot more because it was that was more of a historical fiction account of him. So I I kind of, again, became obsessed with it because, as I said last week, it sort of drops into that sort of Victorian horror story realm with people disappearing and literal body snatching. In this I know. Way. It's crazy. Uh, it's but shout out to Devil in a White City. Um, it's funny, though, because so the book is about two things. The book is about H.H. H. Holmes, who was a serial killer who created this like murder hotel a few blocks from the Chicago World Fair. And so the book is split between the planners of the Chicago World Fair and H.H. Holmes building up this hotel, um, running these cons and killing many, many people. And um, I'm really interested in gardening. (laughs) And so a lot of the book is about the person who created the grounds, who's also the designer of I believe Central Park. Yeah, Central Park and Prospect Park, I think, too. Yeah. yeah, and he has this really, like, interesting philosophy towards creating public gardens and, like, incorporating the nature that was already there. And the guy is, like, quite a character. And so, like, of course I was interested in the parts about H.H. H. Holmes, but I got so invested in this gardener <laughs> <laughs> that I feel like I need to reread Devil in a White City because... There are, like, so many things going on in that book. It's really fascinating. If you're interested in architecture, history, serial killers, this is the book for you. I think the same guy did um, uh, Greenwood Cemetery. Am I wrong? I thought he did, too, but I wasn't sure. It, like, like rang a bell. 
It rings a bell. Don't hold me on it, people. But I'm thinking that he did. But H.H. Uh, H. Holmes is a very interesting person. He really is fascinating. There are... Um, it's like interesting to think about the psyche of his murders because he was known for being very like calm, cool, collected, creepy. Sure. Um, but such like a master of himself. And he was very good at getting people to do what he wanted. He was, he's yeah. He started out as a con man and he would murder people because they got in his way. Let's just let's just start and get into it. Cause it <laughs> there's an evolution here, and then eventually he just gets caught because he was. I mean, he wasn't like a super mastermind. He wasn't like a mad genius, but he did definitely take advantage of the uh, sort of anonymous society of Chicago, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, he was very good at choosing his victims. Yeah, he was good at choosing people who wouldn't have the capacity to be missed in a substantial way. Well, I, I don't know. Except for the, like, except for one of his mistresses from Texas. But Well, yeah, we'll just start. <laughs> let's just start. Cause we're just going to lose time. So, uh, he, he was born in 1861 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. He was the third of five children. He basically lived a very sort of, uh, what later is described as a normal childhood. He was bullied a little bit in school, which in my opinion is also normal. Not really a Mm -hmm. big thing. He, at 16, he graduated from high school and took a teaching job. And uh, he went to a pretty prestigious high school too. He was considered quite smart. He was considered very smart. And that's where he met uh, Clara Loverling. So they eloped. Um, I think he was I think he was still 16. They eloped and uh, in July of 1878. Um, so he got tired of teaching. And then so he worked as a store clerk in Concord, New Hampshire, at a grocery store. Where, and then he left his wife behind, who had just had a kid, their son, Robert. And then... He also claimed that he was kind of violent to her. Yeah. Well, that... I learned about... Yeah. So that came out, that came out after... Um, he had well he was at the university of michigan but but because she came and visited him lived with him there and then she was like fuck you i'm leaving and taking the kid mm-hmm. and she she went back to new hampshire and left him to his own devices so he also had a job um after he left this grocery store clerk he took an apprenticeship with his uncle dr nam white who was uh what they called at the time a demonstrator which is basically uh, he's a professor of anatomy, so he would do dissections, right? He was a big mm-hmm. proponent of, of dissections. Yeah. And in H.H. H. Holmes, um, it said that he always had kind of an interest in medicine and in, yeah, like anatomy, mm-hmm. like how the body works. Yeah. So he worked in later. <laughs> yeah. So while he was working for uh, Dr. White, he expressed to Clara that he wanted to go to medical school and she supported him. Apparently things were still okay at the time. So he enrolled in the university of Vermont and he would, you know, go back and forth to visiting his little family and Clara took a job quote support doing various services. So probably sewing 
like a seamstress or I don't see her being a laundress by any stretch, but, you know, maybe helping neighbors clean the house and whatever, you know, just, they're just this young family trying to sort of make their way. And he's actually not kind of paying any attention to her. So then he, so he's displeased with the university of Vermont for whatever reason. So he, at the age of 18, he transfers to the university of Michigan medical school in 1882. And this is where it gets a little weird for the first time. Yeah. So when you think about the 1880s, right, the medical school, they need, they absolutely had to use cadavers like for dissection. It was part of the state rules in Michigan. So with that, of course, came uh, grave robbing and body snatching. And at the Michigan, at the University of Michigan, it was led by their janitor and uh, Holmes sort of didn't really fall into it. He, he decided that he wanted to be a part of it, right? Because you could get, you could earn money from it. Yeah. Grave robbers were called resurrectionists, which I also found hysterically funny. Um, I, kinda, I love that. It's all like creepy and Victorian. It is very Victorian. Um, so the corpses uh, that were taken out of their graves were arriving at the university in pickle barrels. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and the janitor, oh, yeah, I know. Uh, just, the, uh, when I was in college, I took um, a year of biology, and we would we dissected part of a sheep, um, like piglets, all sorts of stuff, um, a cat, and they come in like these bags. They're filled with formaldehyde, and they just have like the body like floating inside it. Mm-hmm. And it smells so terrible. And I just remember, like, pulling out this piglet from this bag and imagining pickle brine. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) They tried to get me to bisect a a piglet in high school biology, and I absolutely refused. Like, I'm not doing this. I don't like science. Oh, my goodness. My school used to vivisect frogs. We did frogs in eighth grade. I just, but like the dissections, like, they're alive. Yeah, they were alive. Put like this, I know, like, Mm-mm. nope, not doing it. I want to read about it. I don't want to do it. Yeah. But so, <laughs> right. So Holmes got a few more ideas from this whole thing. And he, so he started actually stealing the bodies from the laboratory and he would disfigure the corpses and claiming that they were actually accidentally killed. Um, and then, collect the insurance money that he had taken out uh, like he just created this fake insurance policy on them and he would cash that in for like a thousand dollars each right so he learned that's yeah he was also trained as an accountant which is one of the reasons why he was like scam oriented like he kind of knew the laws and stuff yeah so he was doing that for a while Apparently he made a, a good chunk of money in medical school to do that but he was actually not a very rich wealthy kid when he went to medical school so i think part of it started out as for him to pay his own way he wasn't particularly academic minded he was more into making the money his uh, classmates remarked that he was sort of a half-assed student kind of sleazy Mm -hmm. Um, he graduated from medical school in 1884 after barely passing his exams and then uh, a documentary like one of the 10 that I watched yesterday, because I went into a whole rabbit hole all day yesterday about this. 
it was reported that the board of examiners at the medical school actually had to vote twice to give him his license. Uh, That's what you want. Yeah, that's what you want, a doctor. I know. Like when I when I go to my pharmacy, I hope that they um, were on the fence for graduating. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they were a body snatcher. That's wonderful. It's great. It's great. To me, identity theft. Yeah, like <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. So Clara leaves right before he graduates. So we we've established that. So he also. Grad- yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No. No. Go ahead. I was going to say, uh, so I believe at this point he had graduated, and so Holmes is, like, not very good at staying in one place, mostly because he has a string of, I don't know, like, corpses and scams and disappearances just kind of following him across the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the earliest disappearances that he was, I don't even want to say the word connected to, but like where his name kind of popped up, uh, was in 1884, um, Holmes was like the last person to hang out with this boy before the boy disappeared. And Holmes claimed that the um, boy had uh, gone to visit family in a different city. And then, of course, you know, in hindsight, you're like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, of course, he leaves town goes to Philadelphia where he works for a drugstore and you know just like for some reason another young boy (laughs) died after taking medicine that Holmes had prepared for him coincidence hmm hmm yeah you know like he does have like it's like in two or three different places that these people mysteriously go missing at places that are have a relationship to where he was working at the time. And these jobs last like weeks, not months or years. Like he was there for weeks. And then he would just up and leave and go find another job. It's just so creepy. And it reminds me a little bit of um, Dr. Death as well. Oh, uh, yeah. He was, yeah. Uh, he was a neurosurgeon who um, kept on like – Watching surgeries to the point where he was actually like convicted for like bodily harm. Yeah, Chris- <laughs> Christopher Dunch is the same. Yeah, so like as soon as something would get botched, uh, Dunch would just transfer to another hospital, and he was able to kind of like stay in the business for much longer than he should have been. Um, and you see people with like these very short like job windows. I know, but he, those hospitals, and that was like. That was like 10, 15 years ago. And those hospitals had a, a duty of care to report him. And they didn't want the the stigma of their hospital hiring some junkie doctor who basically fucked up every operation he'd ever been involved in. So mm-hmm. it's on the hospital, too. Yeah. But that's not, uh, why, we're doing. Just, that's not why we're here today. We're here for other things. There's too many um, sidebars. It's I know. It's hard to stay on task with this. Okay, so... Those various drugstore jobs uh, he leaves. And then in 1886, he arrives in Chicago. And this is where he actually takes on the name Henry Howard Holmes, right? Yeah. There yeah, were. Where he built his murder hotel. Yes. So he starts work at a, a Holton's drugstore at the southwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Englewood, which is currently modern day as a suburb. Of Chicago itself. Dr. Holton was a fellow Michigan alumnus 
okay, a few years older than Holmes, and he proved himself to be a hardworking employee and eventually bought the store. There were rumors that he, those two had disappeared, but then I read that they lived their lives out happily in Inglewood until the 20th century. So let's skip that part. So, um, you know, he's making big money at this, at this pharmacy. And uh, with that, he purchases the lot across the empty lot across the street from the drugstore where he starts construction in 1887 for a two-story mixed-use building with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces, including his new drugstore on the first. I think it was three floors. Well, the third floor came in 1892. He didn't build that at first. So, you know, he's building this apartment building. He's got all these contractors, and he keeps, he gets them to build, like, a tiny piece of it, and then he fires them. Because he says they're doing a shitty job and he doesn't want to pay them. But also because he doesn't really want anybody to know what the real inside of the building looks like. Yeah, so H.H. Holmes was designing this building himself. He is also, like, not an architect. Mm -hmm. And he is adding, like, he's soundproofing the rooms. He's adding these... uh, like weird like pipes you know and shoots to to go down to the basement he actually i think hired like a jeweler to create this um kiln in the basement that gets really really hot so that you can like incinerate bodies yeah yeah so what yeah he said that he told the guy it was going to be for glass bending whatever the hell that is in the basement of a hotel okay yeah, and but also the hotel was um, ugly. Like he was not designing this for like aesthetic means. And in Devil in the White City, the author goes into detail of like the window placements would be really weird, or the hallways would be like uncomfortably narrow or something. And it's like um, <clears throat> when you walk into the hotel, it didn't make sense. The proportions were off. Mm-hmm. You know, and he just like it was like a bit of an eyesore. Well, it was also like an Escher painting where it had pa- that like stairways were going to nowhere, doors would open to walls. Uh, some rooms had no windows. Some rooms had five doors. It was a very, it was a very strange place. Yeah, and just like off-putting mm-hmm. and like uncomfortable. Yeah. So he also put in. Uh, he bought a bank vault and had that installed as a room and modified it and put in uh, a gas line in it just yeah. so while he's building this he bigamously marries Myrta Belknap Belk nap in uh, on a trip to Minneapolis uh, he's still married to Clara let's be let's remember that and so this is sometime between 1886 and 1887. That, so now he's married and construction was complete on the building in 1891. And then he starts placing ads in newspapers for offering jobs to young women and advertised his castle as a place of lodging. So I think the second level was originally apartments and not so much a hotel 
because there were some long-term lodgers there. And he even lived on the second floor. The people that ran the jewelry store lived there. And he had some maintenance people that lived there. So I don't, like, it's a big building. But how many apartments could you have to rent? Yeah, and I was even reading that as far as it being used as a hotel, it was, like, not, he would, like, put people in it. But it wasn't yeah. really a place that you could casually just, like, check in a room. Yeah. So, also, we should note that all of his hotel guests, fiancés, wives, and employees all had to have life insurance policies that he was the beneficiary to. Mm. Red flag, people. Red fucking flag. A bouquet of red flags, if you will. Okay. So, let's see. Oh, okay, so now he's hiring young ladies to work for him, right? And with that, with that, it means that uh, he's not faithful to his second wife, Murda. The first affair he has is with Julia Smythe Connor, who was the wife of Alex Connor, who they were living in the building at the time, and Alex Connor ran the jewelry counter on the first floor. Um, they had a daughter named Pearl, and Alex found out that they, uh, uh, Julia and Holmes were having an affair because Holmes fucking told him. Yep. And so Connor quit and left his wife and daughter and left Chicago. With the serial killer. Yeah. And, I mean, and, I... Ju- and Julia maintained her relationship with Holmes until her and her daughter up and disappeared around Christmas of 1891. Which was about five months after Alex left. Yeah. But that's like something that Holmes would do is he would find people who were like isolated either by like distance or or being poor, you know, or like in this case, um, you know, like husbands like I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You know, that was kind of the um, his M.O. Yeah. He was also apparently quite the ladies man. Very, you know, dapper, smooth talker, um, not of large stature, so not very intimidating. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, and even, um, so Megan, you found um, a news report that went into great detail about uh, Holmes's execution when he was eventually caught. Mm-hmm. And you even get the sense that, like, the prison guards didn't really mind him. Like, he was just kind of, like, calm and... You know, like a little bit chatty, kind of personable. And yeah. that's like walking to the scaffold. I mean, he reminds me of a few psychopaths that we've, that I know in, in, in my murderino days. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he had several mistresses all eventually disappeared. Like in 1892, he hired a girl named Amelie Sigrand and she began working in the building in May and she was disappeared by December. Mm-hmm. But it, she was his mistress, right? She was from out of town. She came because the World's Fair was going to open in the following year. And she wanted to, you know, sort of... That's why a lot of people were going to Chicago, is to sort of gain fortunes and make money off the World's Fair. Yeah. Yeah. And also, uh, the hotel was like a few blocks from the World's Fair, you know, yeah. so. Um, so he starts to build the third floor in 1892. And he was, now, 
keep in mind that he's in 1888, he's already being sued for insurance fraud and non-payment of materials and furniture and all kinds yeah, of Yeah, because again, he's like scamming all these construction workers, like nonstop, Not, like everybody. The construction workers, the suppliers of the furniture, like everybody, right? And then somehow in 1892, he convinces a number of other investors to expand the building for a third floor, telling investors and suppliers that he intended to use the floor, that third floor as the hotel for the World's Fair. Though the, That floor never was completed. And then when they uh, furniture suppliers weren't getting paid, they went to like investigate and he found that they all found that their furniture was locked in several rooms in the uh, on the unfinished third floor, which is locked away. <laughs> I don't quite understand that part, but okay. Yeah. So let's okay, so we get that part. So during all of this, he meets the acquaintance of one gentleman named Benjamin Peitzel, right? Uh, Benjamin Peitzel is a petty criminal, an alcoholic, married to Carrie, and they have five children. They became fast friends, and quickly he became Holmes's uh, right-hand man for several criminal schemes. So he's in on basically most of the insurance scams. I don't know if he knows about the murders that are going on at the castle, but uh, he may know... I don't know. Like also at the time that the murders are going on, uh, Holmes is selling articulated skeletons that mysteriously appeared in his possession. You know, so he's double dipping. He's insuring these people, he's killing them. And then he's selling their articulated skeletons to medical schools because they need the skeletons. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's unclear what Peitzel knew about the scams, but he definitely was in on the uh a lot of the insurance fraud yeah right so let's see uh, luring women blah 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 um so in 1893 actress named minnie williams moves to chicago and holmes offers her a job at the hotel as his personal secretary and he talks her into signing over like this $40,000 piece of property that she is supposed to inherit in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, so she does bad idea. And he serves as the notary at the deed transfer and she transfers it to him, but it's one of his known aliases. Right. It's, I mean, and then, and then when she goes missing, he transfers the deed to Ben Peitzel. Yeah. Yeah. and this is kind of when things start to really go south for him. Yeah. So he's been sued about 60 times by this point. And by the insurance companies, by the furniture people, by the builders, uh, Minnie goes missing. And, uh, you know, I'll, just quickly, because there's so much to cover. Her sister, who was visiting Nanny, also went missing just to put that in there so mm-hmm. okay and that was in july of 1893 but so now we're august 13th 1893 the unfinished third floor mysteriously caught fire yeah there so was so mysterious 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 <laughs> at the time no history there was- of insurance fraud here 
Nope, none. <laughs> what are you talking about? He's a dapper, debonair, smooth-talking kind of guy. He didn't do anything wrong. Uh, a couple of the employees of the building and long-term residents were able to get out. I think he was hoping that they would die because he's insured them all, right? So the building is insured, uh, his tenants are insured, and his employees are insured with life insurance policies. So I'm pretty sure he was just trying to kill everybody. He insured the building with at least four different insurance companies. So they all promptly sued him instead of paying him. Uh, and they pushed to prosecute him for arson. And this is when he and Peitzel and the Peitzel family decide to leave Chicago. And they went on a multi-state crime spree. One of the trips was to go to Fort Worth, Texas, where he was cashing in on missing Minnie's $40,000 piece of property. Mm-hmm. And wasn't uh, Holmes also trying to potentially set up another murder yeah. hotel? Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he went down there with the intention of building another murder hotel. Like, got the investments yeah. and everything. Yeah. And somewhere along this multi-state crime spree, he marries a third woman named jo- Georgina Yoke in Denver, Colorado. This is his third wife. Yeah. Still married to the other two. So he's a bigamist on top of everything else. So in the crime spree, too, in one of these states, he stopped in, he, they all stopped in Missouri. And he was arrested there for selling uh, mortgage materials that he didn't own. Basically property he didn't own. He was arrested for fraud and thrown in jail. Um, and this is where he meets Marion Hedgepith, who is the, apparently a, at the time, he was like a super well-known outlaw. And he'd been convicted of uh, 25 years. So he and Holmes are in prison now, and they're concocting up another insurance scheme. And he promises Marion he'd pay him $500 if he hooks him up with a shady lawyer to, to sign the insurance papers. And right? It's like, when is enough enough? I mean... It's like, you can't stop scheming. I mean, imagine what he could have been if he put all this fucking effort into some legitimate business concerns. I mean, really. Yeah. I just... Something about the shortcuts. I know. So, this particular scheme, Holmes planned on his own death. Like, he was going to scam... He insured himself and he was going to accidentally die and someone else was going to cash it on the insurance policy. But the insurance company was like, nope, we know you, friend. So they just sort of w- walked away from that plan. And then he and Peitzel decided that they would uh, concoct their own plan. And Peitzel took out a $10,000 life insurance policy on himself, which isn't really mysterious because he has five kids, even though he's mm-hmm. not, you know, even though he's a goddamn criminal and hasn't had a job a day in his life. So not, not mysterious to the insurance companies. Um, and their plan was that the uh, Peitzel and Holmes were, were going to go set up this fake patent office in Philadelphia. And then he was going to mysteriously die in some sort of science experiment that, I don't know why that would happen in a patent office, but okay, whatever. And then Holmes would bring the family members in to identify him 
and then Peitzel and his family would go underground to like South America or whatever the yeah. fuck it was. Right. And I mean, of course, since it's H.H. H. Holmes, this is on Peitzel's end a fatal mistake. Yeah, I don't know why you didn't think that you weren't going to be a victim. That was why I'm like, does he really know what the hell is going on here? I don't you know, know. It's surprising because at one point, well, Holmes was known for killing people like in close proximity to other victims and just no one would know. Yeah. And most of the time he killed them because he, he they were either insured or he talked them into signing over, you know, a big chunk of their finances. It, it's not like your typical serial killer sexual sadism kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Very yeah, strange. it was all very self-serving in almost a clinical way. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to cover Ben? Do you want to cover Ben's death, or do you want me to keep going? I can. All right. So they are currently in Philadelphia. Yep. And uh, <laughs> oh yeah, so Pe- Pe- Peitzel um, was supposed to be like this inventor, right? Yeah, And Holmes was supposed to have found a cadaver that looked like Petzl, which, of course, uh, from Petzl's end is perfectly plausible because Holmes is a prolific grave robber. <laughs> um, so instead, what happened is um, Holmes um, knocked him unconscious with chloroform and then set his body on fire. As you do, apparently. Yeah. And uh, so when Holmes was eventually caught... Um, he kind of implied that Peitzel was still alive um, when he set the body on fire. Um, but during an autopsy, they think that um, he had died and then they, Holmes put chloroform on him to make it seem more like a suicide or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that Holmes would get away with the murder, which, of course, he did not. Um, so Holmes's main mistake was not necessarily in killing Peitzel. It was that Immediately after this, Holmes, because of this, like, scheme that they were concocting with, like, the wife and the kids or whatever, wrote to Peitzel's widow and said that, like, Peitzel's is underground. Why don't you come join him? So the wife and then Peitzel's, three of Peitzel's children, um, their son and then um, two two, um, girls, Alice and Nellie, went down to Philadelphia from Canada um, to, I guess, live with Holmes. Uh, so, of course, Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> he convinced Carrie, he convinced uh, Carrie Peitzel that uh, she can't travel with five children because the insurance company would be looking for a woman with five children. So, Holmes took, he left the infant baby and the oldest daughter with Carrie and took the other three children with him. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, unsurprisingly to no one, um, or surprising to no one, I guess. Uh, the three kids end up dead. And um, so this is when the police really start investigating because at this point they have three children who basically disappeared. Mm-hmm. And um, the detective who was on this case was pretty dogged about figuring out what happened. And of course, Holmes has like these like strings of like arrests and lawsuits. And it's like the more you dig, like you really only have to uncover one body and then the rest just sort of pop up. Right. And so they found, I think, Peitzel's body. And then um, Holmes later confessed to uh, murdering the two girls. And this is pretty horrific by uh, forcing them into a large trunk 
Uh, he then drilled um, a hole in the trunk and um, asphyxiated them with gas. Mm-hmm. And he buried them in um, a cellar of one of his rental homes. Um, in Toronto. I think they yeah. were in Toronto, right? Yeah. And so the police found found them and everything for home started to really derail after kind of like the Peitzel incident. Mm-hmm. The, the son Howard, who was, I think he was only like six, was found in a house in uh, Indiana, shoved in a chimney. Yeah. So, I mean, do you want to continue on with? Oh, well, you know, the murder spree basically ends when he's arrested in Boston, Massachusetts, because he'd been being tracked by the Pinkertons, the famous fucking Pinkertons. He was actually held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas because they were trying to still build their case, but so they could throw him in jail for that, you know, sort of bullshit charge. And they also thought he was going to try and flee the country in the country. Um, I'm sorry, in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. Um, How can you be unsuspecting <laughs> at that point? Like, ah, I, well, I, you know, you're, you're consciously blind to it. Um, on his person, when he was arrested, he had several letters from the Pipeville children addressed to their mother. And that's that's where the investigator started to go and dig up. Oh, sorry, bad pun. To go up and uh, investigate the deaths of the children. I did not mean to do that. That was really fucking bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then that's also when uh, the Chicago police got wind of his arrest. And that's when they raided the house, the castle, and found all the crazy insides, including the basement, which had the human size incinerator and some lime pits. And it was reported that there was a butcher table behind a fake wall. Uh, I don't know if that's actually true because the myth surrounding these things is kind of crazy, but they did find bones, bloody clothing, and some, uh, some tiny pieces of evidence that uh, Minnie and some other women had been uh, killed down there. Yeah, it's like as soon as he got caught, um, the like folklore behind H.H. Holmes like immediately took off. People were fascinated with this case, as people are today. Still are today. I mean, they're still trying to connect. They're, people are trying to connect him to Jack the Ripper. I mean, I'm skeptical of that. Jack the Ripper was, there was like a sexual component. But anyway. He wasn't actually a methodical doctor like uh killer that everybody thinks he was he was he was suspected of being a butcher also there's clear evidence that during the time that ripper was doing it in 1888 to 91 uh, particularly in 1888 holmes was con, con, you know pulling off many different scams in many different states here so it's megan they were twin brothers well okay there also is this crazy conspiracy theory that the Ripper was Holmes's trainee assistant and he was off doing these things and he was supposed to report back. I was like, okay, Reddit, let's calm the fuck down. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you really went into the H.H. Holmes hole. I'm telling you, I spent six hours in the rabbit hole yesterday. I'd never quite done it like that. I just want to uh, throw in a couple of other weird scams that he was pulling off at the castle. He claimed to have discovered an artesian well in the basement that produced water with amazing curative properties, which he basically just tapped into the Chicago water supply. And 
he created this, he claimed to have created this water to gas invention where when the water turned into steam, it was, it could light uh, the gas lamps. Oh, okay. That's cool, so bro. He, cool, soup's cool, bro. Yeah, so he would sell, like, futures on these, <laughs> futures on these inventions and then, you know, scam everybody out of all their money. That's crazy. It's it's crazy to think how naive people are. I don't know. I mean, if you have all this money sitting around and you want to, like, invest in the artesian well that someone found in the basement of their Chicago building, you may deserve to lose your money. Just saying. Well, I also think, you know, like reading that book, I am convinced that H.H. H. Holmes could not have done what he did at a different time because it's like the the whole city was so obsessed with the World Fair and it was like this illusion of grandeur of Chicago being the best, most hopeful and um, most like fortunate place in the world. Yeah. And so I, I think that I, people were primed to like believe in these schemes and there's like this gig rich, quick energy that was just in people's blood. I totally agree with you. People were pouring into that city to make their, you know, get rich schemes come true. You know, there's, and also it was this weird time where all these young women were coming in there to, you know, do jobs. I read where he may have started his own ladies employment agency, which creeped me totally the fuck out because then all he has, he's just got like this, He's got this garden of victims just waiting for him. Uh, I only saw that once, so it you know, doesn't necessarily bear repeating. But it, it's plausible, you know. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. And it's, it's just so uh, America doesn't change very much. I've been, I've been thinking a little bit about, like, what's going on today with, like, these, like, coronavirus protests. And it's just, um, I think that, like the soul of America is like this desire for like work and prosperity, mm-hmm. you know, to the point of delusion. Well, you know what, honey, I'm sorry you want to get your roots done, but you don't get to kill anybody in the process. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, but this was like a really interesting murder <laughs> to uh, to read about, uh, and it's definitely one of the more historical ones that we've done. We usually don't go this far back into history, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I really do think that H.H. Holmes is really interesting in his own right, but also very reflective of the times that he lived in. One of the reasons I suggested it is because it has a Texas connection and a Minneapolis (laughs) connection and a New York connection. There you go. I thought, you know, that'd be fun. Yep. Hit all the towns. All the places, all the things. Well, I guess we should wrap it up, kid. We've been doing this for some time. Uh, well, thank you for joining us on this episode of Crime Talk BK. Please join us uh, next week. We are not live, almost live on air um, every Saturday from 11 a.m. to noon. And then again, Friday, what's our Friday time slot? 2, 2 p.m. 2 p.m. We follow um, Amy uh, Goodman on Democracy Now! So get your news and then get your crime. We're also on iTunes, if anybody cares. (laughs) Great us (laughs) to review us on iTunes. (laughs) I've always wanted to say that on a podcast. I know. 
But really listen to us on the show because the station needs your ratings and we need your money. Otherwise, we'll never be able to do it again. So uh, thank you for listening. This was a fun one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Oh